It's day four of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Well, today we are skipping over to the book of Job. What? Well, remember, we are following a chronological reading plan, and because the Bible is not laid out chronologically, there will be some skipping around here and there. So just a heads up on that. Now, Job's life, we believe, runs parallel to Genesis, and this is probably the best place to insert this account, because after this in Genesis, we are full speed ahead into the story of Abraham and the formation of the nation of Israel, and it's just going to snowball from there. So in this book, we will be introduced to the use of more poetic writing style as opposed to the prose that we have been reading. So buckle up for this one because this can be a tough book to get through, but you will find in the end that it is one of the most beautiful redemption stories out there. Now, before we get into it, if you could please help us out, if you love the Word of God, and if you're back here for more Bible study, can you just hit that like button for us? Because that will help to increase the reach of these videos. So that means that you might believe that this could help somebody else as well across the world. And also make sure you're subscribed to the channel or our podcast. You've got the notification bell on so that you know when every podcast drops each and every day. Also, speaking of which, my good friend Holly has been working very hard behind the scenes, making sure everything is up on our website, heartdive.org. But also, if you give us your email on our website, which allows you to download our free reading plan, you will also get a daily email every time the video comes out or the podcast drops that gives you everything in one place. We're not spammers. It's a very succinct email that just gives you the video, the notes, everything in one spot so that you can have it all right there. So if you want to be a part of our newsletter, just go ahead and head to our website, heartdive.org and make sure you insert your email. Heads up, it may end up in your spam or your junk folder. So make sure to check there and stick us in your inbox because I just found my emails today in the junk mail when Holly was talking about it. I didn't even know we had daily emails going out, but God is good all the time. All the time he is good. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thank you so much for another beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, for being such a good, good God. Lord, I pray that we will be able to see your goodness in every word that we read today, every word that you have penned. Help us to see your heartbeat. Forgive us, Lord, where we have sinned, and I pray, God, that you will bring to the top of mind that you will show us in our hearts where we have gone wrong, whether it be in our thoughts, in our words that we have spoken, or in our actions. If we have hurt other people, oh Lord, I pray that we will go to them and that we will seek reconciliation that we'll seek forgiveness. Also help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. Please do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Lord, I just pray that your holy presence will be here with us today. Will you use me as your vessel? Help me to get out of the way, Lord, so that you can be seen and only you. We love you so much. Give you all the glory in Jesus name. Amen. So the good old book of Job, by the way, I did once again, download the Bible project summary or poster of the book of Job printed it out on some tracing paper, glued it into the spine of my Bible. I like to do this now because I'm a visual learner. So podcast listeners, if you need to see what I'm talking about, head on over to YouTube and check out the video. Otherwise, we're in the book of Job. The author is unknown, or at least it's not stated. Scholars believe that it could have been Job himself. Some say, no, it's Elihu. Others say Solomon because there are some different similarities or we see things that run parallel with the time of Solomon. Some say Moses. But what we do know is that it was written 
written sometime after 1200 BC because there are mentions of weapons, meaning this was during or after the Iron Age. Scholars also believe that this is the oldest book written in the Bible. Doesn't mean that it happened first, but written first. And the theme of it is suffering, God's faithfulness, restoration, His sovereignty, and His omnipotence, which means His unlimited power. And of course, we know that it addresses the question, why do bad things happen to good people? So Job's name actually means hated. Hated by who, we ask? Well, obviously hated by Satan himself, not by God. So we start off here in chapter one. There was a man in the land of Uz. Now we don't know where Uz is, possibly in modern day Syria, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless. So he had integrity and he was upright, which just means he was outright good. One who feared God and turned away from evil. So Job is basically the epitome of wisdom. When you read through the Proverbs, you will see that the fact that he was blameless, upright, and he feared God, that is someone who is very wise. So he's not without sin, but he is a righteous man, just like Noah was. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Well, that just goes to show that he has got a blessed family. These numbers, seven, three, and then adding them up to a family of 10 children. All of those numbers are numbers of completion. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So obviously very wealthy, very prominent person. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Now, we don't know what this day is, could have been their birthdays, but nevertheless, we see they are a party-throwing type of family. They're a fun family. You want to be friends with these guys. And they would send an invite, their three sisters, to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. So he was a good father. He would get up early in the morning, he start praying for his kids. And that convicted my heart today because I thought, when is the last time that I've truly intentionally prayed for my kids and not just said, oh, Lord, help me with my children. So I busted out my trusty resource this morning, The Power of a Praying Parent by Stormy. I don't know how to say her last name, but an amazing author. I will link this book in my Amazon link in the description box. But there's all kinds of books that she has. Power of a Praying Woman, Power of a Praying Husband, Power of a Praying Wife, Power of the Praying. I don't know what else she's got out there, but I've got a lot of these and they're incredible. This will help your prayer life. If you don't know how to pray, you don't know what to pray, this is a great start. Reading prayers is a great start, which by the way, I've got an announcement coming up here sooner than later about things that we are going to be offering for you all. So not only does he pray for them, he also anoints them because he's worried that they may have cursed God in their heart. Now, some of your translations may say blessed, and you ask, why would we have two words that are complete opposite? The ESV translation has switched this word to cursed because they believe that the word blessed was actually written in the Hebrew form because whoever wrote it could not fathom the thought of putting the word cursed next to the name of Yahweh. And so this is what is known as a euphemism. They would put a milder word in the place 
of where a harsher word would have existed. So the word should have been cursed. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, remember the sons of God, typically being referred to as angels, so we likely see these as the fallen angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. So they do have access to heaven and they are coming into the heavenly court of God. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Well, of course, God knows all things and he knows where Satan has come from, but he loves to ask the question to see how they will answer. So, this goes to show that Satan is accountable to God. And also, side note, the name Satan may not actually be his proper name. We don't see his proper name until a little bit later on, but this word Satan actually means the accuser or the adversary, which is what Satan is. Nevertheless, whether or not this is the Satan, which I believe it is, or if it is one of many Satans, many antichrists who are adverse to God and his commands, we know that he is sourced out of Satan himself and that he is no good. So, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, remember that scripture that we brought up yesterday, how God goes to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are set on him. Well, complete opposite here, <laughs> Satan going to and fro throughout the earth, looking for people to actually destroy. So, Satan, he likes to devour and destroy while the Holy Spirit looks to empower and employ. That's a good way to remember it, right? And you can't help but wonder, how would the writer actually know that these things took place? Well, clearly God revealed to the writer that these things happened, which shows that they likely had an intimate relationship with God. And so, that would point to Job because we will see how Job's relationship with God is indeed very special. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So, here we see the fact that he's calling him his servant, that he has got a joyful and reverent relationship with the Lord that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason at all? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And how would Satan know this? Well, he may have actually already tried taking Job down, but was unsuccessful. So here Satan is implying that people will only bless God whenever they get blessed, as if he is up there trying to bribe us into worship. Now, some of us are appalled at that thinking, but let's check our hearts anyway. Do you need to be bribed into worshiping God? Are you able to bless God in the hard times when you don't feel so blessed? I think it is important for us to point out some of Satan's tactics that we are seeing in this chapter. One, he doesn't know our thoughts and our future. That is why he questioned and asked God, but surely he will curse you if or when. He's also very cynical. He's always questioning our motives. He is our accuser, so he's always trying to get us to doubt what is going on in our lives or why we've done the things that we've done. He's obviously against God and his word. He needs God's permission in order to make things happen, and he will use evil character to attack those who are godly, people like the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, and he is also able to possibly even inflict sickness. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, reading this at face value, one might think, 
why in the world would God allow Satan to go after one of the most righteous men alive? This really seems so cruel. But if you know the heart of God, you will be able to see his heartbeat in scripture. And again, I have written many of his heartbeats in the margin of my notes, and I don't usually talk about them. Side note, we're gonna do something with the heartbeats of God next year. So make sure you do download my notes if you wanna be able to see how I have seen God's heart revealed during my reading. But let's look here at some of those heartbeats that I've written down. God puts a hedge of protection around us, where Satan knows that we are off limits to him. He then blesses our work. He blesses our possessions. He gives us increase. He does not create hard times, but he will allow them. And we will see at the end of this story how that all turns out for those who remain faithful to him. And then my favorite heartbeat of God, he puts Satan on a leash. He limits his power because God is sovereign over all. He will only give Satan power like this whenever he knows that it will work for his purpose. And this is important for us to realize because I think that we're the ones who actually give Satan more power than he deserves. Instead of looking at a situation in our lives and saying, okay, God, I know that you are in control. I know that I'm going through this for a purpose. Strengthen me by your power. Help me to remain steadfast. Increase my faith. I'm trusting you in this. Many of us will get stuck at, the devil is attacking me. Why is this happening? And then we just end up paralyzed right where the devil wants us. So while he can't touch us, he can do enough to get us to imprison ourselves, thus empowering him to keep those shackles of doubt and fear feeling real tight. So heart check. When bad things happen, who do you give more power to? And how can you use those moments to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? Verse 13, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So the Sabians were nomadic raiders from the land of Sheba. Now, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, the fire of God, scholars believe that this is possibly lightning, which tells us that Satan is given authority at times by God to be able to control weather events. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So the Chaldeans were thieves. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So here we see that Job has basically lost everything. He has lost his livestock. He's lost his workers. He has lost his children, his family, and he's lost all of his prosperity. So Satan did not hold back. 
He took full advantage of the authority that God had given to him. And this is why it is so important for us never to give Satan a foothold because you just put your foot in that door just a little bit. He's going to come barging right in and he's going to be like a bull in the china shop and he is going to do everything he can to destroy completely. He is not going to hold back even on us. So then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. So this tearing of his robe and the shaving of his head were typical signs of grief and mourning, which goes to show that he's a very real person with very real feelings. And isn't it amazing that he fell down, which shows that he had really deliberate humility in his moment of grieving. He went to worship the Lord. And I don't know if that is my first response in the time of suffering and trial. I hope that it is. When I think back on times in my life, I definitely know that it wasn't always the case, but this is the ideal response that Job is showing to us. He is teaching us through his suffering. He is teaching the angels through his suffering. So Job's response gives us instruction on how to live. And so I just said, thank you, Job. Thank you for enduring that so that we are able to then learn from you on how to deal with life. And he said, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and by the way, this is the word Yahweh, the proper name of God, and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, this is a pretty incredible response for Job to be able to look at his losses and say, none of it was mine. It all comes from him and it is all taken by him. This is an incredible perspective to have because that will loosen our own grip or desire to control everything in our life. And then it will keep us from being prideful. It also helps us to be even more generous in our giving whenever we realize that everything that we have comes from him. So heart check, do you see the things in your life as gifts from God? And would you be okay if they were suddenly taken from you? Or do you feel as though God owes you something? Now in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So he passed the first test. Chapter two, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So word for word from the first chapter. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And he's using these words against Satan, because remember in verse nine of chapter one, Satan said, does Job fear God for no reason? And so God is basically saying, yep. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone in his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand only spare his life. So he is given once again, limited authority to be able to test Job. Now this term skin for skin, what does that mean? Well, some scholars believe that it's one of two things, that it comes from this bartering term of trading one skin for another. So in essence, Job was willing to trade his family in order to save his own life. That is what Satan is implying. Or it could have come from the terminology saying eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So Satan went out from the presence 
presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores or boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? So when he says that she is speaking as one of the foolish women, he isn't calling her a foolish woman. He's just saying, this is very out of character for you. You're talking like those women over there who don't have any discernment about what is from God and what is not. Now, it would be really easy for us to look at his wife and be like, why would you say that to him? But we got to have grace. We've got to remember that this is a woman who has also lost everything. She has just lost all of her children. She has just lost all of their livelihood. And so she too is stressed out. And we know how it can be in the way that we react to things and people whenever we're stressed out. She also may have thought that maybe he was being a little fanatical at this point in his religion and possibly not being realistic. Or she maybe just wanted to see him out of his misery because of the fact that it was that bad. And so when Job says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? I mean, this is the central message of Job. The fact that we've got to trust God in both the good and the bad times, even whenever we don't understand what is happening and why. And Job is ultimately fulfilling a huge purpose of God, showing us that our bad times may be our greatest testimony for the world to see God's goodness and faithfulness in the end. So in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So he passed the second test of losing both his health and being alienated from his wife. Verse 11. Now we get introduced to his good old friends. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. That's how bad his boils were. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, if you know how this story goes, the last thing that you're probably going to say about Job's friends is that they were good friends. But I think it's important for us to see that they really have been up to this point because good friends will do exactly what they did. They will come to you in times of need. They will rally around you and they won't feel the need to try to preach or give you any sort of life advice so that they can feel better about themselves in that moment. Good friends will simply be there and listen to you. And like they did, they will weep with you and then rejoice with you in the good times. So this not only helps us to identify what good friends are, but it also shows us how to be one. And again, if we have the same perspective of Job, knowing that all things come from God, then good friends are a gift as well. So if you don't have friends, start praying for them. Ask for them. The Bible says that we have not because we ask not. So heart check. Do you have good friends in your life? Have you prayed for them? How good of a friend are you?
And now Job will be the first to break his silence in chapter three. Now, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. So he's not committing blasphemy, but getting real close to it right now because he's not cursing God or even his parents. But this word curse means that he's holding the day of his birth in contempt. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived, let the day be darkness. So he was cursing the day of his birth and then also also the night of his conception. So he's saying, wipe it off the calendar. I don't want it to be there anymore. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day. Now, who are those and what is this type of cursing? Well, this curse is different from the curse in verse one. This one actually refers to the curses of magicians. And even though he doesn't identify with any sort of pagan ritual or even magic, he is using this sort of dramatic language in this poetry right here. And that is what poetic writing would do. It would allow for dramatization or exaggeration. He is not worshiping pagan pagan gods or even endorsing them by using this language. So he says, let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Who's Leviathan? We'll see more about him in chapter 41, but his name actually means twisting one. Now, in mythology, he was a sea creature or a dragon that terrorized sailors and fishermen. So he was essentially a monster of chaos. But what we know is that he is a representative of evil or of Satan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. So we see here that Job has a misunderstanding of the human existence because of his sorrow and because of the fact that he isn't happy. He thinks it would be better just to be dead. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. So why wasn't I stillborn? Why did the knees receive me? Or why did the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and then I would have been at rest. Now in his grief, Job clearly has a misunderstanding or even no knowledge of the afterlife. He thinks that if he had died or been born dead, he would have simply just rested. And God is going to correct him later on in chapter 38, because this is what some people will use in order to back up this doctrine of soul sleep, that when we die, we simply go to sleep. But we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that Paul says to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. And Jesus also tells the thief on the cross next to him that he will be with him today in paradise. So that goes to show that there is an afterlife immediately. And God will say, you speak on things you know nothing about. So Job is speaking based on frustration, not revelation. So this is where you got to be really careful when you read through chapters like this and not take it as gospel or things to live by. You've got to understand the context by which it is being spoken by who and what the intentions are. So he said, I, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, wrong, and there the weary are at rest. 
There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master. So in essence, he does recognize that death is the great equalizer, that everybody sort of has the same status once you die. Why is light given to him who's in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. So he is wishing he could die, but there's nothing pointing to the fact that he might be suicidal at this point. He's just agonizing very honestly here. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? So he is recognizing this protection of God, but he feels as though it is holding in the affliction rather than allowing him to have boundaries of protection. So he sees it as a restriction. But the twist is, is that God has actually removed his hedge of protection around Job. And that is why he is feeling so vulnerable. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So this chapter tells us that even in his righteousness and even in his prosperity, Job had genuine fears. He wasn't just living this happy-go-lucky life with all of his livestock and his money. This is the very reason he would pray over his children. And now we see why we can't judge a person's life based on how successful they look. You never truly know what is going on behind closed doors of both their home and in their heart. But the amazing thing here is that he did indeed pray over his greatest fears, and yet they still came to pass. And now he is thrown into a great depression and despair. And so to that, I just say again, thank you, Job, for keeping it real. Because sometimes we put so much expectation on people that we won't even allow them to feel the things that they're feeling. Even the greatest men of faith can fall. And this is where an incredible amount of grace needs to be poured out. But I do want to end with a heart check in this chapter. Do you believe that this kind of grief and raw expression toward God is conducive to a life of faith? Like, do you feel like it's okay to be able to say things like this to God? And now we hear the first of the lovely friends and their responses to Job. So this is the middle part. Sometimes the middle of situations is the hardest to get through. I mean, if you think about the beginning of a storm and the end of a storm, it seems real short compared to the middle, right? So this is going to feel very weighty. I'm just warning you. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, so Eliphaz, because he's speaking first, probably the oldest and maybe the wisest, and the fact that he is a Temanite, Teman was actually known for their wisdom. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? So he's basically saying, is it okay for us to speak now? We've been sitting with you for seven days. Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. So you should be able to deal with this. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. So the fact that he is saying he is impatient, we saw how amazingly 
extremely patient Job was in the beginning. So probably a little bit of a change going on here in his disposition. Is not your fear of God, your confidence and your integrity of your ways, your hope? So in a sense, he's implying that Job kind of has a guilty conscience here. I mean, this is a little bit of a mild rebuke, even though he started off with sort of this backhanded compliment. He's saying, you should be stronger now than most other people. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So this saying right here is a proverbial saying that probably has a double meaning. So some scholars say this this means that the strong are eventually going to become weak. So Eliphaz is basically saying, listen, the fact that you're going through all this bad stuff means that you have done something wrong. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Now, mind you, every word that appears as a revelation or somebody who says, the Lord told me or the Lord showed me does not always mean that it is actually from the Lord. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes and there was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, this statement here and this thing that he heard is likely true. I mean, if we think about it, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there is no one who can actually stand righteous before God. So that is truth. And he probably actually did hear that, but he's applying it in the wrong place and with the wrong implication that Job is not righteous. And that's why he is dealing with this because we know that God said otherwise. He actually said that Job was righteous. Even in his servants, he puts no trust. In his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in the houses of the clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. So he's speaking of the fragility of life. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? So he's basically saying, Listen, life is weak, and it's as weak as a tent that is pulled up during a storm. So in all of this that he is saying, it's very short-sighted, eloquent words. Chapter 5, he continues, Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root. So he's saying fools are planted at first, but eventually they're unfruitful. So he's basically calling him a fool and saying, ask anybody. They'll tell you that what I'm saying is right. But suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. And I just thought, man, what a backhanded reference to Job's children. And in the midst of him just losing them, him saying they are far from safety whenever you have done wrong, which Job has not done wrong. The hungry eat his harvest and he takes it even out of the thorns and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction doesn't come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man, 
man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So he's basically saying this trouble didn't come out of nowhere. It had to have been born of something. And this reference to the sparks flying upward could be a possible reference to the mythological god of the underworld who was responsible for plagues and for lightning. So he could be saying just as the sparks come up from hell, so does sin come from a sinful nature. So as for me, I would seek God. So he's saying, if I were you, Job, I would be going to God, which hello, Job has been there. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. So this kind of made my spirit start to feel a little bit better because he's just declaring the goodness of God. So these things that he is going to be speaking in the next couple of verses are all amazing truths. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets high on those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. And he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night, but he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty, so the poor have hope. And injustice shuts her mouth. So a whole bunch of heartbeats of God right here in this section. So behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Now, the Almighty in Hebrew is Shaddai. So if you ever hear El Shaddai, that is the meaning Almighty. And so here we see Eliphaz dropping a truth bomb by way of a beatitude. Blessed are those who God corrects. And we actually see Solomon and the writer of Hebrews talk about this a little bit later on. But he is saying this with the implication that Job is being corrected for a purpose or rebuked by God. But if we just sit on this blessing for a second, how do you feel whenever you are corrected? Do you feel blessed? And how can you change your perspective if not? And he continues, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. More truth bombs. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. And I said, that's untrue because he doesn't always deliver you from all of your troubles immediately. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, which stones in a field would yield no fruit. So he is basically saying, you are in line with destruction and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. So in the end, we see Eliphaz has really great intentions to try to speak truth to his friend, but knowing what we know, it is a complete misapplication of that truth and definitely not packaged in love. So in a sense, he's coming from a place of judgment, making assumptions based on circumstances rather than hearing and looking at his friend's heart. And we can be real quick to look at people and pass judgment based off of things that they say, or even just by what their life looks like on the outside. And then we will give ourselves the grace pass whenever someone calls us out by saying, well, you just don't know my heart. 
And God is calling us to actually do the opposite, to try to see a person's heart before we assume something based off of their circumstances or by things that they have said. We're supposed to give them the benefit of the doubt because He does. So heart check, do you give people the benefit of the doubt? Or are you quick to jump to an assumption about someone's character based off of what they say or do? And of course, we know that we're supposed to identify a tree by its fruit. So this doesn't mean that we just turn a blind eye to every sin, but it does mean that the fruit better be real stinky and brown in order to consider it spoiled and not just a suspicious spot, like assuming someone's motive based on something that they've said. So in this case, Eliphaz had no solid evidence that Job had done anything to deserve any of this. And so in essence, we're introduced here to spiritual warfare. And we get to see what happens behind the scenes when all of this is taking place in the spiritual realm. And some of us hear the word spiritual warfare, and then we immediately get scared, like, I don't want to deal with that. I just want to hide away from it. But it's a very real thing. And we have authority. We don't have to fear it because we have got the almighty El Shaddai on our side. So Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this word today. Lord, you knew exactly what you were doing whenever you created and formed Job. Thank you for showing us what it means to be a true warrior with a real faith, Lord, in the midst of our suffering. Most of us have in no way ever experienced anything close to what Job dealt with, but we still find ourselves doubting and complaining and even wallowing in our sorrow. And so I pray, Lord, that today we are able to turn that around, trusting that there is nothing that can touch us without it first going across your desk for a stamp of approval. Even if the enemy wants to come at us, Lord, we know that we will stand firm, knowing that you will never leave us to fight any battle on our own. We also know full well that he cannot touch us and that his power is limited and that he is on a leash. So forgive us, Lord, where we have given him more authority and power in our lives than he should have had. And I pray that you will make us all the more aware of his nature and his character so that we can properly identify who the real enemy is. I pray, Lord, for a hedge of protection around each and every person today. Thank you for blessing our lives, Lord, and we recognize you as the giver of all things good. May we never take that for granted. So Lord, help those of us who are parents to be like Job, praying for and pronouncing blessings upon our children. I pray that we will all be good friends as well now that we can see what that looks like. And I pray that you will also bring good friends into our lives. We all need a tribe of God-fearing people around us so that we don't have to go at this life alone. And I also pray that you will increase our discernment of words being spoken to or even against us to be able to recognize when they are truth or judgment. Help us to respond in a way that glorifies you. And I pray that above all, we will be people who love one another, giving the benefit of the doubt, not being quick to judge, but always seeking to have your heart and to see people through your eyes. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive Him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. 
Hell is a very real thing, and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die, but I don't want to live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer and I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins. So I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.